and uh, save the Jews from an annihilation that had been set up by their enemies. And when it was said and done, in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make themselves days of feasting and joy. I guess it wasn't Forrest Gump, after all, who says, have a good day. The Jews created a good day there after God had delivered them. That they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai uh, underlined that and made it an official day as the leader in those days of the Jews. That must have been quite a trauma understanding from a certain date that there was coming a day soon in which all Jews throughout uh, the empire, near and far, would be killed. Word had leaked out. Word had been sent to all the different provinces that Jews were fair game at a certain time, and you could kill them without penalty, without any problem. And then the error was seen through Esther and Mordecai, and even though that order was not countermanded, the Jews were given permission to defend themselves, which they did quite effectively. So that which had been promised to be a very traumatic and death-dealing time was turned to a day of relief, of deliverance, and ultimately then of happiness and joy, a time that was turned from sorrow and mourning to joy, and a day of feasting, or two days were set up as days of feast and joy to be kept from that time on. There are those who say that, well, God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, therefore this doesn't mean anything. Uh, There are many, many references to God, or uh, not by name, but certainly uh, indicated that they were praying and fasting to whom? I mean, it's ridiculous to say God is not involved in this story uh, and in the deliverance that was given. I consider it for me at least, a commanded assembly, because God did see fit to include it in the Bible, and it is something that those physical Jews did, and we spiritual Jews are looking forward to the same kind of deliverance very shortly now from the ravages of this earth. It is becoming quite clear that there is a great number of people who are quite uh, violent who are going to try to kill everyone who subscribes or ascribes to Christ in this world. Whether they be true Christians or false Christians, the fact that they acknowledge the name of Christ sets them up for death. Now that is coming when? Well, it's already in effect. It's already begun, and it's getting worse by the day, where they're beheaded uh, by the dozens, uh, wherever they can be caught. And it's coming to this country uh, very soon, and even the leaders in Washington will not say that the Islamic world is a violent world and a violent religion. But if you read their Koran, you will find they are very, very violent, and that they teach violence, uh, 
to every one of their people, and they try to appear, some of them, at least for now, to be peaceful. And perhaps some of them don't buy into the violence in the war, and some of them may be peaceful. But as a religion, in spite of things we hear from Washington, that is a people bent on violence toward particularly Israelites, and it is within the Israelite community primarily on the earth today that Christianity or Christ is advocated and mentioned, and only where Israelites have gone has Christianity been introduced on the various continents. So they're going to be coming after everyone who takes the name of Christ, and that would include us. Very much so us, because Satan targets us above all others who consider themselves Christian. And it will take God's divine intervention again. And remember those fasts of uh, Zechariah, of the uh, battle against Jerusalem and its destruction and against the temple, and ultimately then the appointed leader of Israel who was killed, and so on. And those scenarios are slated to be repeated against the spiritual temple of God, as well as ultimately the physical temple and the wall of Jerusalem that shall be built here in the end time. But he says he will turn those fasts that we keep now, all four of them, into feasts of joy. So there's a direct tie between ancient Judah here and the spiritual Jews of today, in which the death and destruction that has been pronounced upon us by Satan and those who are following his ways is going to be removed, and if we are counted worthy, we will be protected from that by a wall of fire that will come around those whom God gathers to finish his work. So, I keep Purim in that spirit that God has delivered before and that he has told us he will deliver again. And that just as their day of trauma was turned to joy and feasting, our day of trauma to come, that has already been pronounced upon us, will be turned to feasting and joy as well. So, God will see to it that we're taken care of. Well, I think the Purim is a very excellent reminder of what is to come and what God plans for us and should therefore be kept uh, to remind us of the delivery that God promises. Anyway, it falls during the middle of the week, so we're not going to have quite as many activities as normally we might uh, since so many are working, but... We do plan a dinner on Wednesday, March 4th at 6 p.m. Dinner Wednesday, March 4th, 6 p.m. The cost is $10 per person. I don't know how they put on the wonderful meals that they put on for the small amount of money that they charge. But they're able to, A, we don't pay food servers, B, we don't pay cooks, uh, C, we don't have to pay rent on the building, and so on and so forth. don't have the business overhead, so it's basically just the food, and that's primarily the reason that it can be done at such a low price. 
It's hard to find a hamburger in anything but an absolute fast food joint now for under 10 bucks. And some of them are getting up to where your Happy Meal or whatever it is uh, that you might want to buy is 8, 9 bucks. And by the time you add tax, it might be 10 at the, at the favorite slop joints that people use today. So if we can have a fine meal for 10 bucks, I think I'm uh, overjoyed that that can be done for us and prepared with volunteers who are willing to serve and to help. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. So I plan to be there, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, they did, in this particular case, give a portion or a small something to one another, and especially to the poor. Um, so they're asking that we bring some kind of a nice little gift. It doesn't have to be expensive, but something to show that we're willing to give and to serve and to love one another on that evening. Uh, and we've, we've done this in the past. Uh, and it's scriptural. I know we have, in a sense, an aversion to swapping gifts in that it smacks of Christmas and so on, which is uh, not proper. But on this evening, uh, it is, I think, proper based on the historical record and the way that it was done then. Uh, They were given a nice gift from God, were they not? The opportunity to continue to live. And then this, then, is a small token of gratitude toward each other, and they did band together to help each other live. Uh, In one case, they killed 75,000 of their enemies on one day. So they had to work together in order to accomplish that. So they gave, they helped each other, and then they celebrated together and enjoyed basking in the blessing of God. Uh, Everything will be provided with the meal except for wine. If you want to bring your own bottle, uh, that's fine. Wine or beer is uh, part of feasting and a fast, a feast, not a fast, but a feast of joy uh, under control. And if not too much is imbibed, it can certainly relax us and make a social event better. Uh, Please give your money to Rachel or Charnel by Thursday, February 26th. This is the 18th. So uh, by the 26th, please turn in the money. Uh, That will help them plan. I'm not going to get a a show of hands of who's planning to come. Uh, I think most of us certainly will. And we can count how many are around and, and know that that will be about it to plan for. But they'll know by the money you turn in for sure. Uh, So, as a closing note, it says, Make them days of feasting and gladness, days of giving gifts and feasting and joy. So we have that to look forward to on March 4th and 5th. Now let's go back to the Ecclesiastes, (laughs) from a fasting and feasting announcement to the feelings of frustration that Solomon had, even in all his glory, over situations in human life, and certainly looked at from a human standpoint. We got down to chapter 4, where he says, he opens the chapter by saying, So I returned, and uh, as I think I mentioned last week, he gnawed the same bone over and over throughout this book about the futility of 
life, the shortness of life, and how there was nothing eternal about it or nothing that lasted. It was all, in that sense, vanity because it came to a screeching end at a certain point. He says, so I returned. In other words, I think what he's saying here is, I thought about these things, I wrote some of them down, and then, after maybe having other duties or responsibilities, or a week or a month later or a year later or whatever, he returned to this line of thought because he was a man who had been given a great deal of understanding and wisdom, and he was trying to sort out the human frame and human life and what was important and what was not important. So he kept coming back to it. So he says, so I returned. I returned to the subject and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So he set about to meditate on, to think through, to try to understand all the ways that human beings oppress one another, whether it be physically, uh, with various types of violence, or emotionally, through words, or financial oppression, or political, whatever ways that people find to oppress one another. And we seem to find a plethora of those. So, I'm going to consider, he says, oppression and what comes of it. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. So he said, people are put in a position of weakness by those who have superior physical strength or intellectual understanding or political power or whatever. You might think of women who uh, are oppressed and beaten and subjugated to all kinds of emotional torture by husbands who are physically stronger uh, or whatever. You have a few women who oppress men the same way, but certainly the preponderance is the other direction. But that's one thing we see in our society and have for a long time, and there's a backlash against domestic violence now, which is primarily perpetrated by men. So nothing has changed, really, since Solomon's day. People still find ways to put down, to oppress, to lord over, to... uh, minimize the opportunities, the feelings, and so on, of other people. And there's really no comforter. Now, Christ understood this because he said, I have to go away, but when I do, I will send a comforter. So that no matter what your state in life, no matter where you find yourself and how you might be oppressed by people in some way, You always have God to go to. God always understands. He knows when to chasten and punish you. He knows when to encourage and strengthen you. He knows what you need, when you need it, and how it needs to be brought to you. And we have an avenue through Christ and through the Holy Spirit that we can approach the throne of the most mighty being on earth and ask for help and assistance and for deliverance from whatever kind of oppression we find ourselves under. Uh, We are simply oppressed 
by Satan's uh, culture and his society that all around us is. That is an oppression. And it is getting tighter and tighter, and pretty soon it's going to be turned from a yoke of wood to a yoke of iron, and not just the slavery of the Constitution being destroyed before our very eyes, and a mild form of slavery that we are already under, but it is going to be turned to a yoke of iron and physical slavery, forced labor, and being fed whatever the powers that be want to feed you, if they want to feed you, or if they don't want to feed you, to let you starve or shoot you, or whatever means they plan your demise. So great oppression beyond what we have ever understood is right at our doorstep, and the noose is drawing tighter day by day. Where do we turn? Where do we turn? To God Almighty. To God and His Spirit, and ask for comfort, for forgiveness, for mercy, to be accounted worthy to escape this horror that is going to suddenly grow much, much worse. So, from a human standpoint, there is no deliverance. What I read on the alternative media, on the internet, here and there, uh, some of them are pretty naive. They do see trouble coming, but they think if we'll buy gold and silver that the economic crash will happen, and on the other side, Americans will come out okay if they have food, guns, gold, and silver. And that's pretty much the end of their testimony. What they don't grasp and realize, that this is truly, most of them at least, this is truly a punishment from God for our national sins, and we're sick not only from the head, but clear down to the foot as a society. And, but it will be the government who oppresses us, and then when the people are without food and sustenance, they will oppress one another and kill one another for what they have. So the only comforter that we have is from Almighty God and from His deliverance. But as a human being, as Solomon doped this out, there was no comfort around. You were wherever you were, and you suffered whatever you suffered, and there was no one to deliver you. That's the human state, most generally, and always has been. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. I know I've had that emotion at times when I see some elderly person, perhaps, in the church die, uh, ahead of the horror that is about to come upon us. They will escape this. Those of us who are alive and remain are going to see it happen in all its horror. Thankfully, we have opportunity to be delivered from it, but... In some respects, it would be a blessing to just quietly go to sleep and not have to witness it and, to some degree or another, be involved in it. Although I think none of us really want to die and we'd like to see the other side and see Christ return and see the blessings that do come. Now, in one sense, those who put the things on the Internet are right. 
On the other side of the horror comes the kingdom of God in the millennium at a time of peace unparalleled. But it's for this nation to survive what is coming and to take care of itself and pull itself out of the problems is an impossibility. It is only with Christ's return and his beating down and binding of Satan and throwing the beast and false prophet into a lake of fire that the earth can begin to be delivered. So nothing that we might put aside or save today can save us from this. Now, I think it is wise to go to the ant, you sluggard, and see how they lay up for the winter, and other animals do. You see the squirrels all summer long, busily gathering nuts and putting them in hollow trees or burying them, so they'll be there for winter sustenance. And we are told that trouble is coming, a time of a political winter, certainly, and war, and it would be better to be at least somewhat prepared. Uh, and I cite an example we've used over and over, and that is that the Israelites in Mitzrayim went through the first of the plagues uh, until finally God made a difference and they quit coming on Israel and went only against the Mitzrayimites until they were delivered. So there was a period of time when they went through trouble just like their captors did. And indeed, we may go through some of that ourselves. There is coming a day very soon when you will not have a job. There is coming a day very soon when you will not have a car or gasoline and you will not be able to go to town. And if you did, the stores would be empty in any case. And if you looked like you had anything, you would be killed for it. That is in our very, very near future in this nation. So, when I look at people out in the world, some of my relatives or people I've known in the past, not in the church particularly, and they die, I think, well, you know, for them, that is truly a blessing. For those of us who are in a position that we might be delivered, maybe it isn't quite the same category, but with them, they're far better off being dead already than having to go through the tragedy that is ahead. So even back then, Solomon praised the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. In other words, he was looking at life from the standpoint of the hardships, the difficulties, the frustrations, the losses, just the trial and tribulation of being a human being and having to live with yourself and others and all the things that could happen on this earth and often did. So he says, man... Maybe you're better off being dead. He'd reached a point, perhaps late in his life, where all the grief he had suffered, in spite of all the blessings he had, he thought maybe death wasn't such a bad thing after all. Again, consider that he is writing from a purely physical human standpoint. He's not at this point considering God and a future beyond this life, but just this life per se. Yes, better is he than both they, which has not yet been, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So he says, if you lived and you faced life on this planet, 
remembering that God did pronounce curses and said that life would be hard from the Garden of Eden on down. It would be difficult. Life would not be easy for human beings. And hopefully they would learn somewhere along the line that they ought to turn to God. But this life was intended to be, in many respects, essentially miserable until God shows the contrast by sending Christ back and making a peaceful existence. Which means the relationship between God and man is repaired from when it was destroyed in the garden. And it has never been restored except through a few, such as you, who have come to understand and become part of the new covenant. Even most people who think they understand and know and follow the new covenant don't even begin to understand it, though they consider themselves Christian. It is only the few who know the difference. And the few, even of the church, who are going to be used as a remnant to support and fulfill the end-time work of God. A very, very small number of people will be a light set on a hill in Zion to show the world that there's something better. Solomon, from his standpoint, didn't really know that. And he didn't see anything better. So, the resulting ennui that he suffered is brought out here. Verse 4 again, well, maybe he paused there with that thought and came back to that same bone later on at some point. Again, I considered all travail and every right work, all the trouble and tribulation, and then the things that are done that are a right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. So he said, even if you do well and you do that which is right, that doesn't deliver you from travail. Because even when you do good, human nature is such that you will be envied. And envy produces upset, frustration, more on the one who's doing the envying than the one who is being envied. But it affects everyone. So he says, even when you do good, again, it's kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. You do good or you do evil. Uh, either way, there are bad repercussions from it. In other words, this life and all that it entails is essentially vanity. And nothing good can come of it unless there's something better than this ahead. So even if you have a right work, you're envied by your neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. You can't please people no matter what you do. Doing right is better than doing bad. But even when you do right, you cannot please people. That's just a fact of life, and Solomon recognized that and stated it. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. There are those people who turn inward and they think only of themselves. They take care only of themselves and they do not consider others, but everything is about them. It's all about me. There's nothing else. I want what I want. I'll get what I want. 
I'll have what I want and I'll live in my own little world and take selfies uh, as much as I wish. That's become kind of a buzzword for me, the selfies, because it is so innately selfish that people are doing that and focusing on themselves. And that's sort of what he's talking about here. Uh, you, you eat yourself up. When you turn to inward and you recognize that you are not what you ought to be and you don't have everything you want, uh, then you begin to gnaw on yourself. And depression is essentially selfishness. Because the depressed person has their mind on themselves. Oh, woe is me. Poor little me. It's all about me. And they get depressed. So, if you're depressed, realize you're being very selfish. And begin to look outward and don't just chew yourself up uh, in depression. That's not a good place to be. If you do that, he says, you're a fool. Get your mind on someone else. Get it outside yourself. Focus on other things and you will have a better life than if you just focus on yourself all the time. So don't chew yourself up. And sometimes we tend to do that. We find fault with ourselves. We esteem ourselves very low. And we find it's hard to be encouraged, it's hard to be up, because we see all our problems. Now, yeah, we have to recognize our faults, our weaknesses, our sins. We can't deny them, we can't run from them, we can't avoid them. We simply have to face them and overcome them. And then we'll be in the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is reserved for overcomers. He makes that very, very clear. So you can't run from them, but on the other hand, don't turn inward because you won't overcome them that way either. Most of our sin and our frustration is because of one form or another of selfishness. And it's when we turn outward and try to help others and love others, and love is an outward thing, and it's the greatest thing then is when we begin to find a small amount of satisfaction unless we become self-righteous about what we do for others and pat ourselves on the back and think, how good am I? So that's the other ditch. Uh, you know, there's ditches, it seems, everywhere you turn. It just doesn't matter. So then he says, verse 6, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now he had his hands both plumb full and his treasuries plumb full and everything that there was, the richest man on the face of the earth, maybe the richest man that has ever existed even until today in spite of billions of U.S. petrodollars that some people have. Who knows? But certainly... He had enough wealth that there was no question what that could or could not do for a human being. And don't we sense an awful lot of frustration here in Solomon in the things that he's saying? Here was a man who had everything you could possibly want or dream of or create or, or build or whatever you wanted, you could have it. And he concluded that I'd rather have one handful and 
peace, quiet, than I had both hands full and people trying to take it out of them and accuse me and all kinds of stuff that you go through when you have something. And you can't have peace and quiet and tranquility because people want what you've got. There's where the jealousy affects you. So he says it's better not to have much and live quietly than it is to become wealthy, both your hands and your bank accounts, everything full, and have travail and vexation. Verse 7, another thought, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. He keeps coming back to this. Uh, I, I thought again. I thought some more. And, boy, did I ever see vanity under the sun. There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yes, he has neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor. So he says, you can be one person, and you can be for yourself, and of yourself, and by yourself, and become, let's say, a self-made man, to use our expression today. Uh, you stand alone. You've made this wealth, and everybody else is just a servant or something to you. But you're by yourself. And often those who do rise to great power wind up alone because they have alienated everyone else in their rise to power and wealth. And Solomon found himself really in that position. He had more than anyone and he couldn't trust anyone because everybody wanted what he had. Everybody was jealous of his money and of his wives. They were jealous of his palace and his house. They were jealous of everything he had. So he couldn't live in peace and quiet because he had to be aware all the time of people that he knew were two-faced who would stab him in the back in a moment if they thought that they could gain any advantage by it. So you can see where his feelings and his thoughts are coming from. Yet there is no end of all his labor. You can, you can be alone and you can have it all, but you have to keep working. Once you have something, you know, you work so hard to get something, and then once you have it, you have to work double overtime in order to maintain it. So you don't get any rest. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. How many wealthy people have you heard of that have said, this is all I need, I don't need any more money, uh, I've got all I need, I'll never turn my hand toward making another dime. That's a pretty rare approach. All the rich people want more. Any way they can get it. i got to have more. got to have more. So they're never satisfied. Neither says he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? He, he's just so overwhelmed with greed that he doesn't stop to think, why am I doing all this and, and who is it for? I just want it. I just desire it. Christ said that in the Sermon on the Mount. You're never satisfied with seeing or hearing. You always want more. 
So, at what point does satisfaction set in? Well, it just doesn't. They're never satisfied. You'd think, boy, if I just had my house paid for, if I just had a new car, if I just had uh, a good bank account, and I could go to the Caribbean when I wanted to, or, you know, whatever things might turn you on. If I just had this, or if I just had a million, oh, go ahead, I don't care, make it a billion. If I just had that, I'd be satisfied. I'd have everything I want. No, you wouldn't. There have been too many that have tried it. There have been too many that have made the millions and billions, and they're not satisfied. And here, this Solomon was the greatest of them. Why do I do all this work? Why do I amass this? What good is it going to do? I could be enjoying the good life, but I'm so busy trying to scratch for more billions that I don't even have time to enjoy the good life. This is also vanity. It is a sore travail. I have been around some fairly wealthy people off and on through my life. And just observing them and what they went through, I realized that their wealth, for the most part, was a sore travail. They didn't know who was really their friend and who wanted a handout. They didn't know what to do with their money to keep from losing it, where to invest it, how to handle it. And they worried and they fretted and they frustrated themselves over how do I not only increase it, but how do I keep what I have. I got in the stock market a little bit, oh, back in the 70s, and also bought some silver back in the 70s. We had a guy in the church who was peddling that kind of thing, a stockbroker. So he convinced me that this particular stock was going to do really, really well, and that if I'd buy silver, it was going to be worth an awful lot of money soon. This was in the 70s. So I invested a little bit in both. And that became a travail to me. It wasn't a lot of money, it was a small amount, but it became a travail because every morning I had to grab the newspaper and find out whether I was plus a quarter or minus an eighth in the stock market. Am I, am I going to be jubilant today or frustrated today? Is it going to keep going down or will it go up? It was a sore travail, small, but a sore travail to little old me. And you know what happened with the silver? They had it in a vault in Denver. We were in Idaho at the time. Had it in a vault in Denver where it was nice and safe. And silver was going up a few pennies here and there, and I felt pretty good about the silver. And then one fine day, the president of the company, who had the silver in the vault decided that Mexico had a much nicer climate than Denver. And he took all the silver that everybody owned out of his vault and went to Mexico and was never heard from again, as far as I know. Now, ultimately, the stock did go up, and I sold it, 
and got my investment back out of the stock and the silver. But that was my last foray into the stock market and the last time I would even consider buying silver or gold that I did not have in my hand. (laughs) Because even if you're Germany, you can't farm it out to New York or it may go away, as has recently happened. So, it is a sore travail. It seems no matter what state we find ourselves in. And he said, you're better off. Just have a job, make a living, and be able to live in peace and quiet rather than going through what people with a double handful do. And after stating that when you're by yourself, you don't know who you're doing this for except self. So he says in verse 9, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, they can share the good times. They can lean on one another. They can uh, perhaps enjoy together that which you selfishly by yourself can't. Because they have a good reward for their labor. Two people working together can do better than one working alone in most cases and be happier so doing. So it's better to have two than be by yourself. Verse 10, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. So human beings need to learn to work together, to build a life, to build, let's say, a relationship of two, a marriage, where you can help one another when one might be down, or in family, uh, which the church is, a spiritual family, to help each other up when one might be down, depressed, discouraged, frustrated, and selfish, uh, and not giving out to others. So it's nice to have a companion to help you up when you fall. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Well, it's better to be married, and you're a lot warmer sleeping front to front or back to back than you are sleeping by yourself and trying to generate enough heat for yourself. It's just better the other way. So life is meant to be shared as much as possible in a good way. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. Nice to be joined together to help one another. And I hope that we are becoming joined in love and appreciation for each other so that we can stand together against what is about to come against us. That we need to do. We need to grow together in love, not separate ourselves over condemnation or hurts or feelings or uh, social didos or whatever might come along. That isn't good. It isn't proper. We're supposed to be here to help each other when we're down, not kick each other when we go down. But that's what humans tend to do. So if you do have people that you can love through the Spirit of God, you can help one another rather than hurt one another. The one will lift up his fellow. Uh, Two will withstand where one might not. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
So if you twist three lives together to help each other, that is better even than two. And the more fibers you twist together in a rope, the stronger it becomes. Not easy to break once you twist quite a few different strands together. So God would have us do that here. He uses the example perhaps of marriage with two and then three. It doesn't mean we're supposed to have uh, polygamy. It means that the more people can work together instead of separately, the stronger they become. And it's true of us here as well. Verse 13, Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. I think Solomon had reached a point where he was basically jaded. He had been through so much and done so much, had so much, and had seen so much travail and frustration that he had come to the point life was hardly worth living. Life was frustrating. No one could correct him, could guide him, could encourage him. He would no longer be admonished. He had done it all, and it had basically destroyed him. That's where he was. So he said, you'd be better off to just be a poor child who began to understand right and wrong and the right way to live that his parents are trying to teach him. You'd be better off as a poor child with good teaching than to be an old king who would no more listen, wouldn't hear, couldn't care less, had his emotions so stretched and drawn and jerked in different directions that nothing really much mattered anymore. Why get up? Why crawl out of bed? Life had become a bore. For out of prison he comes to reign. I don't know what he means here by prison, although uh, what he went through in his early life was somewhat like a prison, as it is with all royalty that is trained from child, small childhood in all the things that you have to do to be royalty. How kings act, how princes and princesses act, the exact right thing to say in every circumstance, to have to have higher education of all kinds, to be better educated than any other children around, to know every protocol in every situation, when to bow, when not to bow, when to kiss hands and when not to, you know, and when to put your hands on a lady's shoulders when uh, her husband's being sworn in and when not to, and on and on and on it goes about what they must learn, and they're in class, and they're in training, and in tutoring, uh, in every aspect of life, warfare, finances, everything. So life is all about school, and discipline, and commitment, and you may be king someday, and you may not, but you've got to be prepared in case you are. So in a sense, it becomes a prison to them. And maybe that's what he has reference to, I don't know. Whereas he also, he that is born in this kingdom becomes poor. Uh, here, he didn't come from somewhere else 
to be king. He was born into it. And he had become poor emotionally and in terms of life and his enjoyment of life and joy. That had gone away because of his many sins, uh, the sins of others, and all the difficulties that he had faced, which we've been reviewing somewhat, and will some more here. So he had, in spite of his physical wealth, become poor in terms of joy, happiness. I considered all the living which walk under the sun. I just thought about the whole congregation of man. With the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So, okay, here's, here's the population. I'm, I'm looking at all the people that are living on the earth right now, he says. And a, the, his child, the second child, the one that comes from him, will stand up in his stead... And there is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this is also a vanity and a vexation of spirit. So he says, I'm not only considering the ones that are alive, I'm considering all those that live before me and all those that are going to come after me. Nobody's going to remember poor me. (laughs) The ones that are dead don't know about me. And a generation or two after I'm dead, no one will remember me unless God preserves me in the Bible and some of the horrible lessons I had to learn. But the people who succeeded him in those generations didn't remember much about him. They remembered he was a rich king, and that's about it. But God preserved this for us to learn from. And he said it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. In other words... There's nothing good that lasts. Whatever you do on this life, whether you're a king or a poor man, what is it? You die and it's over. Now let's go on to chapter 5 then. He says, keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Here we are today in the house of God. Keep your foot and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with your mouth, and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and you upon earth, therefore let your words be few. For the most part, it is better that we not talk an awful lot. In the Proverbs, it talks that many words are not spoken without sin. And if we talk a lot, we're going to say things we shouldn't say. So he says, he doesn't say to be silent all the time, but he says you need to think very carefully when you go to the house of God, before God, what you say. Be careful not to be rash with your mouth. God is there, and He knows everything, and we're down here, and we're human, and we're people, and we're subject to selfishness and vanity and lust, envy and greed, and all those human traits. And 
It is a perfect man, James said, that doesn't sin with his mouth. And he says that we all do, because none of us are perfect. So Solomon had seen it too. He had seen boasters. He had seen braggarts. He had seen vain people. He would seen people in positions of power put down other people. He had seen people who were poor put down each other and their leaders. He had seen a lot of evil perpetrated through the tongue. So this is a lesson just on basic human endeavor in life. Be really, really careful what you have to say, especially in a religious way or that has anything to do with God or God's people. Be slow to speak because you're liable to stick your foot in it. Let your words be few. For a dream comes through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. If someone talks a lot, they will show themselves to be fools. We've got the expression that you... How does it go now? It's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. (laughs) Because in many words, there lacks not sin. So we get our dreams, our fantasies, our visions, our our desires uh, through the multitude of activity or business or, or what we dream up, what we fantasize of how great we think we are and how ungrate somebody else might be or whatever. So we set ourselves up as being greater than what we really are, and it is so human and so constant that human beings compare themselves among themselves, and it is not wise, as Paul tells us. We need to compare ourselves to the Father and the Son only. That's it. It's the only comparison you should make is between you and God the Father and Emmanuel. Anytime we begin to compare ourselves, whether it's physical looks, physical ability, intellect, spirituality, uh, anything you want to name in the human realm, we compare ourselves with each other, we are headed for trouble. There's only one standard to judge by. Now, we are so foolish that we will compare ourselves with someone else, and if we, in some area, think that they are better than we are, then we're discouraged. And if in some area we think we are better or doing better than they are, then we become vain and self-righteous. So anytime you compare yourself to a human being, you are asking for trouble. Just be you. And be as much like God as you possibly can be. That is the only fair comparison you can make, and we all suffer when we compare ourselves to God. So we shouldn't get vain. We shouldn't get self-righteous. We shouldn't be over-righteous or holier than thou, or any of those things, because compared to God, we're certainly not holier than Him. So that's the only legitimate comparison we can make. The sooner we learn that, the better off we'll be. We approach our Father 
and our brother in heaven, and we recognize we of ourselves can do nothing, and we are nothing without him and without, without them and without their help. And we can be encouraged in that we can ask for help from them, and they will be willing to give it to us. And whatsoever we ask within their will and in their name will be provided for us. The greatest of those is eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, we, when we think of praying and asking God for what we wish, generally only think of things that would be pleasant for us in some form or another. But remember, the greatest gift of all is eternal life in the kingdom of God. And sometimes the greatest blessing that God could give us in certain circumstances is a good paddling. That would be the greatest blessing sometimes that could be conferred upon us if we are in a state of rebellion or of selfishness or superiority or sin or whatever it might be. Sometimes we truly need encouraged lifted up, blessed. But you have to recognize that chastening is sometimes a blessing. Failure is sometimes a blessing because it drives us to our knees and helps us get close to God. And close to God and healing the breach between us and Him is the most important thing that can be accomplished. So God chooses what type of blessing He will give us be it happy or not so happy for us. That we need to understand. Verse 4, When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. We don't commonly make vows today in the sense that people in the Old Testament did. But when we repent and are baptized, we have decided to go God's way. It is a commitment and hopefully a conviction that we make, and it is a form of vow. When you say, I will not live my life for me, I will live it for you. And to do service to you and your people. That is a vow that has to be fulfilled. There is no backing out on it, or we become a spiritual fool. And God takes no pleasure in fools. We've learned truth. If we begin to back out on it, to give up things that we have proved to be true, we're being a spiritual fool. How do you prove the Sabbath and go back to Sunday? How do you prove the calendar and go back to the Jews? How do you prove some of the things we've learned and then go back somewhere else and do something different? You can't. If you have proved it and you have told, vowed to God that you would follow truth, do you let someone get in your way? Do you let you get in your way? Do you let circumstances get in your way? Or do you pay your vows to God Most High and don't back off on them at all, no matter the circumstance?
Don't let anyone else be a, sta- a, a stumbling block. Compare yourself only to God and keep that vow to Him. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say to you before the angel, it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? We can make all kinds of excuses. We can tell Christ or the angel of God or whoever might give us a comeuppance. Hey, I sinned. I made a mistake. I take responsibility for it. I will do my utmost with your help to overcome it and not do it again. Please forgive me. But it's foolish and senseless to try to make excuses to God for what you are or what you've done. He knows better. If we own up, if we confess and forsake, He is quick to forgive us, casting all our care upon Him, for He cares for us. So don't make excuses to God. Just tell Him the truth. Don't make excuses to yourself or blame it on somebody else for you being what you are. Your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your boss, or whoever it is you want to blame for your problems. You can't blame anybody but yourself, and you're the only one that can fix it. Blaming it on somebody else just gets you in trouble with God, and that's a foolish thing to do. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also different vanities, but fear God. So he interjects God in here occasionally in this milieu of human frustration and says, fear God. That's the thing to do. That's the beginning of wisdom. He was the wisest man on earth, and he recognized that fear of God was where wisdom started. If you see the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. That's not uncommon. For he that is higher than the highest regards, and there be higher than they. So no matter how high somebody might be in government or church or whatever you want to speak of, God is higher than them all, and he's higher than you, and he's higher than me. So our feelings about one another in that sense don't matter unless they're feelings of love and compassion and mercy and help. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. None of us are any better than anybody else. Solomon, as king, was not better than anyone else. He had to eat from the produce of the earth just like everybody else did. If he didn't, he would die. So he's recognizing that he in all his glory was no different than anybody else in that sense. He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And he was first in line in this department and learning this lesson. Doesn't matter how much silver you've got, you're going to want more. Doesn't matter how much money you have, you're going to want more. And it's all vain. You can't take it with you when you die. And he says that here in a little bit. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. I don't know whether that means we get fat 
or that it just means we have great increase. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? You can only eat so much. You can only drink so much. You can only be so warm or so cold. In other words, the body can be taken care of, and you really can't go beyond that. Anything beyond food and drink and warmth, and Christ said that, is extra, and it is generally a source of vanity. Because all you have is just looking at them and enjoying them. And that's kind of like the, the rich man, you know, that looked at all his barns. and he, he had plenty to eat. There were people around him who didn't, but he had plenty. And he says, man, the money just keeps coming in and my farms are doing so well. I don't know what to do. I guess the only thing I can do is just tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I can't eat anymore, but I can look at it. I can sit and look at it till my eyes go dark and they stuff me in a hole and I can't see it anymore. What a futility. Twelve, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. If a man works hard, has a job, has a farm, whether he's self-employed or employed by someone else, and he puts in a good day's work, he has maybe a handful with quietness. He can sleep at night. He's tired. He doesn't have to worry about whether he'll be up a quarter or down an eighth in the morning or whether someone will steal his silver during the night or his gold. He doesn't have to worry whether somebody will hack into and empty his bank account because he ain't got one. Or if he does, there's not much in it that anybody would want or whatever. So, work... Labor, enjoy, as he says in Proverbs, the wife of your youth and, and your family, and sleep at night. But if you are rich, the abundance will not allow you to sleep. You worry about thieves, you worry about robbers, you worry about the stock market, you worry about all the things rich people worry about. If you're walking down the street with empty pockets, you don't worry nearly as much about being mugged as if you're wearing some fine clothes and flashing jewelry and your wallet is bulging in your pocket. You're not as happy walking down the street as the guy that's in plain clothes and doesn't look rich. You're not nearly as likely to get your car stolen if it's not one someone would desire. But if it's a fancy one, uh, chances are somebody's going to want it worse perhaps, than you thought you did. So there are problems that come with wealth. There is a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely, riches kept their owners thereof to their hurt. You amass it, you keep it, you fondle it, you look at it, and you wind up being hurt by it. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begets a son, and there is nothing in his hand. So, you can make a lot of money and have people steal it from you. I've done it. There have been times I made millions of dollars, and I had a partner steal some millions of dollars. I've experienced that. I don't know what he's talking about. 
I had to fight all kinds of carnal reactions when that occurred. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. You're born in this world naked, and you go out of it naked. Uh, well, they may put your best suit on you if you have one, but when you're born, they put some clothes on you. And when you die, they take everything off and embalm you or, uh, what's the word, uh, cut you apart anyway, an autopsy, and look you over inside and out. Uh, so there's not much dignity in death. And then they stuff you in a hole or a crematorium somewhere, and that's the end of it. So, you know, what good was it? What did it accomplish? All your memories disappear, your wealth disappears, everything's gone. So you go, come in naked and you go out the same way. You can't take it with you, as they say. Nothing that you can carry away in your hand. This also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. Here was a guy that was given all the wealth he could possibly have, and he realized pretty quick, I'm going to be a corpse. I'll have a toe, tag on my toe, and everything that I've had, everything I've experienced, going to go somewhere else. What profit has he that he has labored for the wind? It just all blows away. All his days also he eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. So they become paranoid. They become mentally ill, emotionally uh, inside out, trying to deal with all the things of this earth that we think we wanted, but which bring us trouble. Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely for a man, or one, to eat and to drink and enjoy the good of his labor that he takes under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his portion. You don't have to fight yourself and work yourself to death to try to gain something that you're going to lose when you die anyway. Just enjoy your labor. Whatever job you have to do, learn to find contentment and joy in it. That's your portion. Every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Now there might be times when you're just laboring along and perhaps trying to be content with that which you have, as Paul and Christ told us to do. And yet God chooses to bless you in some ways beyond what would be your normal portion. Well, thank God and then be content with that, because that is your new portion. It's when we fantasize and dream and lust and covet and push ourselves that we frustrate ourselves, because we can never have everything we want. So he's saying, if God does choose to bless you for whatever reason he does, be content with that. Be content with what you have, no matter what it is. Contentment is something that you have to teach your emotions, your mind, and everything to be thankful for what you do have instead of being frustrated for what you don't have, whatever area of life it might entail. 
For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answers him in the joy of his heart. There come a point when you begin to lose your mind. (laughs) We have Alzheimer's, we have forgetfulness, we have all kinds of things that happen to us as we get older. You won't much remember all the travail and the frustration and the things you tried to do. Your life becomes a blur. But if we've learned contentment and to have joy in our heart for what we have been able to have and enjoy without being frustrated over what we don't have, then that's a joy that God answers in our heart. So we go to Him, not whining and begging for more, but we go to God thankful for what we have this day. I'm above ground. I still have life. I have something to eat, something to wear, so I don't become the object of ridicule. I have a roof. I have warmth in my home. I'm so thankful, God, to have what I have, whatever it might be. Might not be much. Be thankful to be alive. Be thankful to have your husband or your wife. Be thankful to have the possibility that you might have one someday. Be thankful for what is there, for the sun that shines and the birds that sing, instead of worrying about things that are not or that you wish. All you do is frustrate yourself. So we're negative. The glass is only half full. No, the glass, I mean, it's only is half empty. No, the glass is half full. We need to learn to think that way. To be thankful for a half a glass instead of worrying and fretting that the glass is not full. You have to train your mind and your emotions that way. It doesn't come naturally. We fret and worry way too much. And it makes us frustrated and miserable and then we can't sleep, right? Because we're Worrying, worrying, worrying about this or that, and 90 to 99% of it never happens anyway. We just wasted our sleep and our time worrying about it. So instead, address God thankfully. Thank you, God, for all that I do have, instead of worrying about what I don't have. You'll be better off. And not only that, you'll have a better relationship with God. And he'll get to that as he goes on through this. But that's enough for today.